Good day, everyone. Grace and peace to you all. Today we're going to talk a little bit about religion and politics, or the politics of Jesus. And why? Well, according to what the scripture shows, in the last days there will be three major factors involved in bringing a lot of hardship upon the world. Number one, religion. Number two, politics. And number three, money. And by money, I mean exploitation of the poorer classes for the sake of gaining wealth. Recent statistics have shown that over 52% of all the wealth in the world is owned by just eight people. Think about that. Approximately eight billion people in the world. And eight people alone own the equivalent of four billion people. More than what four billion people own. Just eight. Now, first let me say that even though I have never voted for any politician in any election in my whole life, that doesn't mean that anybody else is wrong if they have voted. It is your right to do so if you choose, and each one of us has a legitimate right to do so if we choose to exercise that right. Nevertheless, I have chosen not to exercise that right. I do not think any less or more of anyone due to their political affiliation. Now, the freedom to choose to participate also includes the freedom to choose not to participate in that process. And I've just chosen not to participate, yet not condemning anyone who does otherwise. Now, though residing in the United States for about 30 years or maybe a little more than 30 years, I'm asked from time to time, are you a Republican or a Democrat? I'm not a Republican and neither am I a Democrat. As a young man growing up in Jamaica, I was never affiliated as a PNP or a GLP either. I'm not a conservative and I'm not a liberal. I'm a follower of Jesus, whose kingdom he explicitly says is not of this world. John 18, 36. That's what Jesus said to Pilate, the Roman governor, when he was brought before him to trial. Pilate asked him, are you a king then? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight to deliver me from the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. The politics of Jesus are not of this world's common order of things. In fact, even a casual reading of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the kingdom of Jesus isn't just a little different or even a lot different than the politics of this world, but rather it is radically different, very different, completely different, in fact. What Jesus offers is diametrically opposed to every political system this world has to offer. The issue is far more important than that, dear friends. What I'm attempting to share with you is that as followers of Jesus, we cannot afford to be so loyal to any political party or so passionate about any political party or so trusting in any politician's promises that you find yourself getting angry against your fellow human beings who disagree with your political views, that you find yourself at enmity with fellow believers or just anyone at all who do not agree with your position in politics. 
In my earlier years growing up, I have seen so much hatred, so much bitterness and resentment and enmity, even between neighbors, between people who call themselves Christian, even between family members, just because of disagreement over political parties. Countless people have lost their lives over political differences, some even because of the clothes they wore. I remember while as a young boy coming from school, walking up the hill to Snow Hill, my elder brother put on a t-shirt that he had innocently got as a present from a family member. And walking home, the driver of a van deliberately swerved and knocked him off the road over into some bushes and down into a gully while the driver and those on the van kept driving and laughing and just kept going. Someone who was in the van later confessed and said he just happened to have on the wrong color shirt that day. Folks, Jesus has called us to something absolutely higher, on a higher scale than any political party represents or can offer. Yes, a higher standard. Understand that Jesus was crucified by a joining together of political religious people, the Pharisees, those were the conservatives, and the Sadducees, those were the liberals. And they joined together. These two religious groups worked through the secular government, that's the Roman Empire, Governor Pilate, and the reason the liberals and the conservatives could unite in the common cause of crucifying Christ, was that they had one vital thing in common. And you know what that was? They hated each other. And this common hatred showed that they were controlled by the same spirit. Even though on the surface appearing to be enemies, once Jesus showed up on the scene, a completely different spirit came into the picture. He represented a completely opposite alternative to both of the extreme groups represented by the Pharisees, the conservatives, and the Sadducees, who were the liberals. Remember now that these two groups were bitter enemies against each other. But when Jesus came on the scene, they forgot their enmity and united against him to bring about his death. They entered into common cause against him. Why? Because though they were enemies on the surface, at a deeper level, below the surface, they were no different. Because they were controlled by the same satanic spirit. They were of the same camp. And so for purposes of political convenience and to hold onto their power for financial gain, they united to eliminate Jesus. Because he posed the ultimate threat to the entire system both parties were dependent upon for their survival. So why was Jesus a threat to both parties of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Because he would not unite with either party against the other. If Jesus had united with the Pharisees, he would not have been crucified. If Jesus had united with the Sadducees, he would not have been crucified. Why? Well, because loyalty to either party justifies the existence of the other. The dark, sinister game our world's political parties play is that each side feeds the hatred of the other. So the hatred of one encourages and sustains the hatred of the other. 
and Jesus would not play that game. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were merely two versions of the same system. And Jesus was something so completely different from either of them that he simply had to be removed. So they engineered a plot, a union of church and state, to get rid of him. The religious element and the political element came together to crucify God in the flesh. Because there was one thing and just one thing they could not tolerate. And you know what that was, dear friends? Love. To state this more specifically, they could not tolerate the idea of eliminating all enmity between one another by loving their enemies as themselves, which is the principle that Jesus taught. Because love to their enemies would eliminate their enemies. And to eliminate their enemies would be to eliminate the very reason for their own existence as opposing political parties grabbing power and money from one another. So given that this is the nature of politics, it would seem that the follower of Jesus should never be fully committed to any political party on either end of the spectrum for the simple reason that the follower of Jesus is called to be a representative of an alternative system called the kingdom of God. I mean, you can be affiliated with one if you so choose, but it should not be so important to you that it changes how you view your fellow men who are on the opposite side. The kingdom of God is the system of God's government that Jesus lived out. This is what Jesus proclaimed and lived out in his life on earth. He demonstrated the life of his kingdom by reaching out with love in all directions, regardless of position or status or party or whatever. He loved all and for which he was crucified by the political ideologues of both ends of the spectrum. They came together to do this due to the fact that he posed a threat to both. The followers of Jesus should strive to be truly unbiased persons who think and act in alignment with pure principles. Operating in this manner will allow the Christian to occupy a place of integrity that cannot be found on either side or end of the spectrum when it comes to party politics. And this will give a special power to our witness in favor of the kingdom of Christ. But to occupy any other position would mean disobedience to the gospel of Christ and unfaithfulness to his kingdom. In fact, dear listener, Jesus commands his followers to enlist themselves in his kingdom and thus to remove loyalty from this world's failed systems. To enlist in Christ's kingdom means committing to the high standard of loving all people, to embrace righteous principles wherever they may be found. You might not like what people do, but you can love the person, but be disgusted with their doings. Separate the person from the action and to see in them someone that Christ died to save, someone who is precious in the eyes of God, despite their deformity of character, someone to labor earnestly and pray for that their eyes might be opened to the love of God and receive that love in their heart. 
In short, we are called upon to love like Jesus loves, dear friends. And to love like Jesus loves necessarily involves doing the hard work of living out what might be called a politics of love. Look at Jesus. Behold him. Carefully, adoringly, behold him and base your political views and spirit on what you see in him. Because in doing so, you are being changed into the same attitude, the same behavior, the same image of character as Christ. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, We beholding him as in a glass, as in a mirror, are being changed into the same image, from glory to glory to glory to glory. In other words, from one stage of character development to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as we study the life of Christ and we understand how he operates, how he related to people, how he treated all, imperceptibly, the Spirit is working within our hearts and bringing the same experience into us. We are growing up in him. The politics of Jesus. Now, Jesus launched his public ministry with the highly charged announcement. What was it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 In a sense, this was a political statement of a different order. How so? In the midst of the kingdom of Rome, he was setting up his kingdom and inviting all people into it. A kingdom is a political structure, a governing system, a social order. It should not be surprising then that Jesus the creator of humanity and of reality itself, would come to our world claiming to be the architect of a superior governing system. Nor should it be surprising that he could not get on board with any existing system that he found in this world. Instead, he launched his kingdom with the word repent. And the word in Greek is metanoia. That's in the original language how it was written, metanoia. And it literally means change your mind, reverse your perception, move the train of your thinking in the opposite direction so that the train of your behavior will move in the opposite direction. It means making a 180 degree turn. This was a system so completely different that many just resisted it and turned away from it. They couldn't process it. After announcing the launch of his kingdom, Jesus delivered a discourse that we today call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is found in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. And what is this message about? Well, it constitutes a description of the relationship principles by which his kingdom will operate. In other words, you may call it his political manifesto because it delves into the deepest depths of the human condition and it seeks to change us at the level of our hearts. And Jesus wants us to see God in a radically different light from the way we've been trained or taught to see God. And based on this, we will see ourselves also in a radically different light. And based on this, we will see our fellow men, our fellow human beings in a radically different light. And thus naturally, we'll treat all in a radically different way. 
the way of caring and taking an interest in the welfare of all, even those who are our enemies. The Bible says if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. You see, dear friends, God is unconditionally good to everyone, including his enemies. So all who claim to be his children should operate in the same manner. It is physically impossible in our own strength. But by the grace of God, by the indwelling of his spirit in our hearts, everything becomes possible. As the scripture says, with God, all things are possible. Only by love can bitterness and hatred be defeated. So first, Jesus pronounces a series of blessings on certain categories of human beings that will compose his kingdom. The poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for justice, those who strive to make peace where there is discord and strife. They're called the peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Do not miss the fact that Jesus is describing people who find themselves on the downside of our world's power structure. These are the ones usually on the receiving end of oppression. As such, they sense what's wrong with the world. They are not comfortable with things as they are. And they desire things to be different. Jesus has come to offer something that will meet their expectations. These are the lowly, the poor, the oppressed, the suffering, and yet he offers it to all. Then Jesus explains in the most direct and practical terms possible exactly what kind of attitudes and actions will make his followers the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He does not mention holding evangelistic meetings or preaching Long sermons and stuff like that, you know, they, they have a good purpose too. But reading his words from Matthew five thirty eight to 48, this is what he said. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whosoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And what Jesus is saying, he's not saying, go out and if somebody slaps you here, say, okay, slap this side also. No, what he's saying is that do not meet anger with anger. Do not meet enmity with enmity. Do not meet hatred with hatred. Because only by love and understanding is hatred defeated. Only by love is selfishness overthrown. He continues, he says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. Let him see that your dependence is totally upon God, who is able to take care of you. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And this is the setting in which Jesus is saying these things. Jesus says, you've heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven. Think about that. Like father, like son. 
For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God doesn't just send the rain upon the crops of those who believe in him. He sends his rain upon the crops upon all who, even those who don't believe him, they plant a field and they get results too. His sun shines on all. Jesus continues, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than any other? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collectors were looked down upon. And Jesus is saying, but they do that too. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the word there literally understood means matured in your dealings, in your relationships, having grown up to a level of understanding and maturity where you have self-control, your mind is clear. You don't allow yourself to be sucked into other people's anger and bitterness. You don't meet bitterness with bitterness. You don't meet hatred with hatred. You meet it with love. It shows you're a child of God's kingdom. Literally, no political leader in history has ever launched a kingdom on principles like this. Furthermore, almost nobody believes that Jesus means exactly what he says here. But the words of Christ run so completely against the grain of human nature that we immediately attempt to figure out ways to interpret his words to mean something other than what they plainly say. And even those who do not believe he means what he says, they find his words to be an impossible assignment that simply can't be done. And this led one writer, G.K. Chesterton, a British writer who was a philosopher and a theologian in his day, and he wrote this. He said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Yet Jesus not only meant what he said, he lived it out, even on the cross, at the moment when one would think that if there was hatred and bitterness in him, it would show up then. But on the cross, what came from his lips was a prayer for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yet Jesus insists that this is what his kingdom looks like in action. Three years after his crucifixion and resurrection, Stephen, one of the believers in Jesus, was dragged out of the city of Jerusalem by the Jews and cruelly stoned to death by them because he told them the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one they had crucified. But what was his last words while being stoned? The scripture says his words were, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. In the midst of it, he was praying that God would forgive them for what they're doing. This was not acting, dear friends. You can't act in this kind of situation. He was being stoned to death. This was the supernatural nature of Christ's kingdom on display through one of his followers because of the power of the Holy Spirit in him. We are called to be salt and light to the world, he says. Only as we live out the giving and the forgiving, generous, enemy-loving, non-violent love of God towards our fellow human beings, especially towards those who have done us wrong, those who slap us in the face, 
and spitefully use us and persecute us. Only then do we show indeed to the universe that yes, God has children on earth. Children who are controlled by his spirit and in whom he is able to do by his power what is impossible for human nature to accomplish of itself. With God, all things are possible and we are called to give a witness, a display of that power in our lives. That is the essence of the message of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave in Matthew. 5 to 7. As long as God dwells in you, dear friends, is there anything too hard for the Lord to do? The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If Christ lives in you, he crucifies the flesh. He crucifies the nature to retaliate and to behave in like manner as you're being treated. He takes it from you by his spirit which dwells in you. And if he lived that perfect life 2,000 years ago when he walked among men, won't he also do the same in you today if by your surrender to his spirit, you allow him to live through you? The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thus he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall be called the children of God. It's a different orientation, dear friends, a different system entirely that goes contrary to our normal way of thinking. But Jesus defines it as what constitutes the kind of life that is acceptable in the kingdom of God. So the way he lived then will be the way he manifests himself through you if you allow him to dear friends. By contrast to the Sermon on the Mount, much of what carries the name Christian in America today is actually a political kind of nationalism that uses Jesus as a mascot, just carrying his name but nothing else. And this does extreme damage to the reputation of Jesus in the minds of unbelievers. Many want to hear nothing of him because of the horrible and cruel things that are carried out by followers of Satan who dress up in robes and preach in churches and call themselves Christians. But let's be clear. The Christianity that is making all the noise on the public stage is not the Christianity of Christ and that the apostles carried forward. No. How do I know? Well, because Bible prophecy doesn't lie. In a single line, the Apostle Paul sums up a profound truth which we desperately need to understand in these times of religious pretension in which we live. He said, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And Israel here is not just speaking of biological ethnic descendants of Abraham. It's speaking within the context of God's Israel, a spiritual entity. The scripture says in Galatians chapter 3, all those who are of faith in Christ are the seed of Abraham. But not all who claim to be Israel, not all who claim to be spiritually in Christ or Christians are really so 
they are not all Israel who are of Israel, Romans 9 and verse 6. During the time of Christ and the apostles, dear friends, the leaders of mainstream religion of Israel had sold their souls to the Roman Empire in exchange for political power and economic advantages. Sounds familiar? Well, the same thing is happening in our times today. Back then, the language and forms of the Hebrew religion were maintained as a mere formality in order to dupe or to fool the masses of the people and to pacify their conscience. But the real thing that Israel was meant to be was gone. Jesus likened the religious leaders of his time to whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful, the scripture says, outwardly beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Matthew 23 and verse 27. In other words, putting forth good-looking displays and good-sounding words on the outside, while really corrupt on the inside. Of course, there are still a few faithful individuals in the corrupt systems, yes, such as Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zacharias and the shepherds who were cherishing the hope of the coming Messiah in their hearts and the wise men from the east who had somehow gotten their hands on the book of Daniel and they were pondering its prophecies about the coming deliverer and so they showed up at his birth and others who discerned the hypocrisy of the system and longed for a genuine demonstration of God's love in the form of love for people, love for fellow men. The same corruption in religious leadership is evident today, dear friends, but on a larger and more diabolical scale. We should not be surprised by this, because Scripture actually foretold that the end-time period of history would be characterized by religious phoniness on a worldwide scale. According to the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and other prophetic segments of the New Testament, as we approach closer to the end of times, the massive system known to the world as Christianity will become nothing more than a grand masquerade, a facade, a fake, largely about making appearances and grabbing onto power and controlling over the minds of people and making money. According to John, in the prophecy of Revelation 12, the visible Christianity operating on the world stage throughout the Middle Ages was in fact a political vehicle used by the state. The church, which was supposed to be the bride of Christ, had become the bride of the government. It had lost its purity, become corrupted, and was now driven by the dragon, by Satan himself. It had become an instrument through which the character of God was greatly misinterpreted and by which millions of true believers were slaughtered in the name of Christ. Meanwhile, according to the prophecy, the true church of God operated as an underground movement in the shadows of the empire hiding from persecution, yet faithfully holding on to Christ and in love and obedience to his word. This underground church proclaimed the true gospel of Christ to the trembling masses of people who were dominated by politicians, oppressed by false teachings, and financially robbed and impoverished by the Christian church. 
according to the prophecy of Revelation 13, Catholic and Protestant Christianity, the beast and the image of the beast, the mother of harlots and her daughters will eventually team up and hijack the American political system for purposes of forced worship. And this will be seen in future studies. While many in mainstream Christianity are crying out against atheism and worldliness as the big dangers of our times, Bible says otherwise. Revelation 13 warns us that apostate Christianity, Christianity becoming corrupted, will end up exploiting the power of the state and that together this is the greatest danger to the world. Let it register, dear friends, deeply in your consciousness. Apostate, Christianity, Christianity in apostasy, Christianity gone bad, exploiting the power of the civil authority, the civil government, the power of the state. This is the greatest danger to the world. When it is true to its calling, it is a blessing. But when it gets corrupted, it is worse than any other world system can be. The greatest crime ever committed was done by people who were religious, using the name of God for an excuse for their wickedness, to crucify Jesus Christ, the only sinless man who loved even his enemies, never sinned. History has shown this over and over. In future studies, it will be seen that the same principles which play out will play out again in the end. Ecclesiastes 3.15, Solomon says, That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. God requires that which is past. History repeats itself, in other words. The prophecy of Revelation 13 explains that the church will manipulate its way into politics and use the state to force religious laws upon the public by enforcing a mark of allegiance or loyalty to its side that can be received in the forehead or in the hand, meaning that some people will buy into it with their belief system. They'll be convinced that it is of God, and other people will merely comply with it in order to maintain economic security, getting the mark in their hand. Every Christian motivated by financial self-interest will either believe in it being convinced that it is of God, or comply with the ungodly union of church and state that will rise up like a monstrous beast to destroy religious liberty, using the name of Jesus to support its unchristian agenda. We must be prepared, dear friends, to stand apart from all this, and many will be bribed and lose their souls because of temporal gain that does not last but a short time. Listening friends, may we keep our eyes wide open. May the Spirit of God open our spiritual eyes so we can discern and see the things that we cannot see in terms of developing world events, things that are taking shape to come to pass, things that are passing before our very eyes right now so that we can rightly relate to the times we live in and know that this world will be winding down quite rapidly and soon. May the love of God so fill our hearts and inspire us with the will to love all others, forgiving all others, thus keeping our hearts and mind pure, 
May we be strengthened with the determination to stay true to Christ through all things, knowing that in Him alone is their lasting happiness and peace. It is my hope and prayer that God will grant you all His grace and His peace and the wisdom to see and to understand. Keep trusting Him, dear friends. Love you all, and may God be with you all. 